This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, produced by, and performed by me, Brad Lawrence, uh, still doing it from a tiny little side room of a tiny little Brooklyn apartment uh, during a pandemic with children playing outside and sirens going off in the distance. But still, I thank you for coming back every week to hear a new episode of Maxine's Ongoing Adventures. And so, with no further ado, here we go to the next episode of Maxine, The Planet's Unknown. Maxine and the Planet's Unknown, Episode 13, Chapters 25, 26, 27, and 28. Chapter 25. Sumner crashed into the stream and dropped to his knees. He looked down at the sharp length of branch protruding from the bloody hole it had made in his left bicep and decided this shit was not going well. He already knew that this was not his only wound but he could sense that it was the worst, or maybe it was the most gruesome, and he was discounting the severity of the internal injuries he could not see. He supposed he'd find out one way or the other. Right now, he needed to get this tree out of him. He was probably lucky. If his arm hadn't gotten in the way, he guessed this thing would be in his lung right now, and this would be the end of a bad day as opposed to just a momentary delay. He turned his arm and winced as he did so. He was lucky again. There was enough exposed branch for him to get a grip on. The spear hurt, but it was going to hurt a hell of a lot more once he pulled it out and the air hit the exposed wound. It was his misfortune as a trained first responder to know this before he actually did it. He sat for a minute. Got a couple of deep breaths in. Closed his eyes. He felt the trickle of the stream, cool and soothing as it flowed over his knees and up his thighs, swirling the rips in his pant legs, easing the stinging scratches there. He could hear the water and the breeze in the trees. He reached out with his right hand. He got a grip on the exposed branch, and he pulled. The scream surprised him. He wasn't entirely certain if he had ever truly screamed before in his life, but the sensation was as if there had been a tar-soaked rag dipped in broken shards of glass tied to the end of the stick so that, as he pulled it out of his arm, the rag was pulled through the open wound after it. It had been a scream-worthy sensation, and he had given it its due. Now he knelt there, clutching the bloody stick in his hand, breathing hard and staring at the sky through the shimmering prism of his own involuntary tears. Slowly, he pulled off his jacket and tossed it behind him onto the dry bank. Then he did the same with his shirt. This peeled away thanks to the amount of blood that had soaked one of his sleeves. Once his arm was bare, he turned back and stuck the whole thing in the water after the shoulder. The cooling water felt amazing. Then he sat back up, turned, and grabbed his jacket. Right before he'd walked out of Sandoval's lab, she had tossed him a first-aid multi-tool, just in case. 
He thought that it did not bode well that just in case had come so quickly. He also remembered being minorly impatient when she had called his name. She'd already delayed him by collecting samples, and he was almost out the door. Now he was grateful he had turned back. He fished the tool out of his pocket, flipped up a nozzle, and sprayed sterilizing foam into the wound. Within a second or two, the exposed portion of the foam had hardened into a flexible seal. He flexed his arm carefully. It felt weird, and it hurt, but it was usable. He put the tool back into the pocket and tossed the jacket behind him onto the shore once again. Then he turned around, bent forward towards the stream, and splashed water on his face. Right before it happened, he thought, What is that? Are those eyes? Chapter 26 Maxine was in a near panic. Her mind was reeling. Some part of her still felt like she was whatever those things had been, the occupants of this ship, those strange, strange things, those strange, dead things, dead for centuries. She could still see her hands and her limbs double-jointed and arranged in a way that to everything she had known to that point seemed like a chaos bordering on insanity. That was until she had walked into this chamber. She had walked into this chamber, a 15-year-old girl who had grown up on a spaceship called the Contiki, and then she had this other consciousness, this other life imposed upon her, forced upon her. She felt a dull and horrible rage. We need you to understand, Miss Maxine. She wanted to lash out at him, at Mr. Humphreys, but he seemed to know enough to stay out of arm's reach. What was worse was that below the rage and the sense of being violated in a way that she couldn't even begin to understand, she hadn't even begun to consider how this had been done to her, or how she knew that Mr. Humphreys had been a party to it, or how she knew that he was not acting alone. Below all of that was the feeling that she missed being that thing, that Maxine. She'd been pacing frantically, her heart hammering, and now she suddenly stopped and dropped to her knees. She remembered so vividly what it was like to be one of those dead things, so long since reduced to ashes and dust. She remembered the sense of purpose they felt, the mission, the scope of the lives they had sacrificed to journey across the stars in service to their kind, and most important, to their queen. She remembered what it felt like to have such devotion, to know why you existed and for whom, and to have no questions, because as long as your queen continued, then everything you loved and cherished about your world and your civilization would continue with her, in her person, and the generations she would spawn among distant planets. Planets like this one where her queen had died, suffocated and broken and squished beneath the crush of bodies. Her body had been added to that weight. She sensed her queen's death and with her all the hope that they had carried with them onto this fossilized vessel. She had been there. Her body had been there until she too was crushed. 
the last thing she had done in this world was to betray and destroy the only thing that had ever mattered to her or her people, and she had not been given a choice. She'd been given a compulsion. And there, there was that rage again. Only now, she had the rage of two lives. Her own 15 years, and all the suffering it had brought with it would still have been too little, still too childish, to amount to much against what this place was capable of. But now, she was two Maxines, and she had twice as much fury, more even. She stood up, determined to find something, anything she could make pay for this. She took one step. She came up short. The lights swam. Mr. Humphreys looked at her sympathetically. And then, everything went white. Chapter 27 Sumner stood knee-deep in the stream, pounding the ever-living shit out of whatever had just tried to drown him. Against a rock! He had a fistful of it, and he was not letting go until it was pureed. You never really know how you're going to react to something making a true and unambiguous attempt to murder you until something does. Apparently, Sumner's go-to reaction was to beat its flailing body against the nearest rock while making a guttural snarl. He had seen the eyes. The big, black eyes open up just below the surface of the water that he'd been splashing his face with. Then, it had wrapped itself around his neck and pulled down. It was a mottled bronze and amber creature, the same color as the stream bed, and it had seemed to have no bones whatsoever. Its rubbery skin and muscle expanded and flowed over Sumner's head and neck, forcing him around, twisting him as he swung and splashed fruitlessly. Before he knew it, he was pinned to the bottom of the stream, with this thing spreading across his chest and shoulders and working its way up the left side of his face. All of this had happened so fast that Sumner hadn't had a chance to get a breath. Now, there was no breathing. He stared up at the sunlight rippling and scattering off the surface of the water. Paralyzing panic and hopelessness was stealing through him, and he found himself unable to move or get oxygen. It had caught him completely off guard. He'd been so disoriented that it had stolen his mind right out from under him. Then, those eyes appeared again, right over him, staring into Sumner's own. Sumner began to buck and twist wildly. After a couple of seconds of struggle, he seemed to break the creature's strange grip on the silty stream bed. Sumner's right arm came free, and he reached up and grabbed a handful of the beast. Its protruding eyes seemed to expand with sudden surprise. Sumner came out of the water with a roar of fury and a handful of animal. He slogged through the current, dragging the creature with him. God damn mother of God! He raised the creature over his head. Out of the water, it essentially looked like a three-foot-wide duvet cover full of muscles and covered in goosebumps. But Sumner didn't really take the time to look at it. He made his way to the rock, and then he was just bringing the thing down on it over and over again. 
At first, the creature had grabbed at Sumner's wrist and forearm, trying to get away from the rock, trying to twist the flesh and muscle off of Sumner's bones. But Sumner was unrelenting, and soon the grip the beast had began to slacken. And then the sheriff was just battering a limp bag of jelly against a boulder. When the thing was totally lifeless, and not a minute before, Sumner threw it across the stream with all of his might. It landed on the far stream bank with a splat and rolled, throwing bits of sand and pebbles as it went. Sumner stood there in the stream, chest and shoulders heaving, glaring a war after his defeated enemy. He looked up at the blue sky and gritted his teeth. He struggled to calm himself, to gather himself enough to think about what to do now. Now, find Maxine. That was the only thing. The part of Sumner that was still very much law and order of his small community was embarrassed at this excessive display of emotion and brutality. The part of him that was a father whose daughter was lost on a strange and treacherous planet was done fucking around. Chapter 28 Maxine was sunlight. That would soon change, but for now, she would savor this feeling. The sails that propelled her were warm and full, swollen by the star whose system they had entered after a period of delicate navigation. She and her flockmates had come from the deepest reaches of cold space, the warmth that had propelled them from the last star finally starting to diminish. But it was enough. It was always enough. For there was the star and its retinue spread out before them. The end of a journey was always so melancholy. The last star had been a great red thing. It was a low rumble of nuclear energy ebbing its life-giving fire and light out into space at a lazy pace. For a sun. It had been accompanied by a tiny system of three planets. One great gassy beast that was of very little use to Maxine and her kind, one cinder of nickel and iron in close orbit, and between the two, a little world of fertile soil, water, primitive vegetation. They had landed there, what, a hundred cycles ago? They had only stayed for one, of course. They had landed after an even longer journey from the star before that. They had landed, and there had been more of them then. They drifted in at a long, flat orbit, circling and circling, riding from solar current to magnetic field to exosphere to atmosphere to air currents around and around that little world until they touched down. That Intercycle set of sails had been ragged by the time they had made planetfall, scorched by shear and wear. They shed those wings, and for a cycle they were terrestrial things. They celebrated. They were together in the way they were only together when on a planet, and it was a time of joy and contact and communion. They got together and planted young, and... 
at the first shoots of the generation that would one day forget the planet they had originated on, they began their songs. The lyrics would encode the young with all they needed to know and understand about who they were, their culture, their journeys, and the journeys yet to come. The songs awakened genetic memory and bridged the gaps therein. Then it was time. The young were on their way, and Maxine and the other adults harvested the raw matter they needed to once again extend their sails and set off. The process was one of focus and attention to detail as a prelude to a long, near quiescence across the vast reaches of space. They pulled the resources of that world into themselves, breaking them down and transforming them into the great panels that would carry them aloft and capture both the energy and the speed of the present sun's rays. The golden fibers and filaments of their bodies reached and stretched and flexed until they themselves were the vessel that would carry them aloft. Maxine could feel herself growing and spreading, and then she was ready. The wind caught them. They were carried into the air. They circled the planet that had been their home for the cycle and that would be their young's incubator for the next. They watched the land roll below them, great swaths of it having been cleared for their building materials. They had left enough for their young, whose numbers would be six times Maxine's own flock. The young would climb free of the soil of this world, take what was left here to grow great golden sails of their own, and begin their journey through the stars. Maxine knew that they would likely never see the generation they had just left behind. For now, it was time to fly on. She had the hard-woven shell that would shield her from the horrible cold of space and the oxygen chambers were full, as were the vacuoles where raw nutrients were stored to be meted out in even measure for the migration. The rest would be provided by the sun of this system. The solar collectors that now made up 90% of Maxine's body would collect energy and store it away while using those same life-giving rays to propel her and the flock, first in an ever-widening orbit and then out of the system entirely and on to the next location. They traveled at immense speeds, but once they were on their way, Maxine's body would do very little work. She would drift in and out of states of consciousness, brought around by the stimulus of shifting light and color and gravity, but never fully asleep, always just enough awareness to keep her in formation with her kin. She spent centuries traveling the stars in the vast emptiness with this family. Their numbers dwindled over time. There were accidents and illnesses, almost always when they were in a terrestrial cycle. There were times when the group would split, some part of the flock peeling away to go their own way to other systems and other worlds. These partings were taken as par for the course, but they were still sad. 
This was the way that time wore you away, stripping you by layers as you made your way across the great wandering. Did Maxine fear being alone? Someone would be the last of her cohort. After the separations and the deaths and the wages of time itself, there would be just one of them left someday. What was worse, to be alone or to have the journey end? The journey. She had already seen so much, worlds and stars and nebulae, and stranger things for which her people had no names. Space was paradoxically as infinite in its beauty as it was its emptiness. She wondered if only her kind had experienced or understood that paradox. There was color in the whitest white and the blackest black if you had the eyes to see it. The void teemed if you saw enough of it. And there was sound and current in stillness if you had the means to sense it. Maxine and her kind would swim in this ocean, this cacophony of silence for cycles and cycles and cycles. Then there would be a sun and a system and a planet to harvest and lay the seeds for the next generation, and suddenly everything was noise and mass and action, as was happening now. They had entered the gravity well of a green beyond green world of mountains and valleys and forests and fields. As they rode deeper into the atmosphere, the place only became more vivid. This was a rich planet. They would set down a huge generation in this place. They could. They had become a smaller flock themselves, having traveled for so many centuries. So they would need only a small portion of such a fecund world's wealth. That meant they could plant a vast crop of young. That generation would wake up to a planet they could strip right down to its core and then launch themselves on their migration with wings enormous and strong. They would take everything and leave nothing. And they would sail potentially further than Maxine could even imagine. Then, something felt different. The attitude and angle of her kin shifted. She noticed that first, but then Maxine felt it as well. The closer they got to settling down on the planet's surface, the more they did not want to. A sense of urgency was not something her kind felt often. It was so rare that it took her a moment to recognize the sensation at all. But once she did, it was undeniable. They needed to get back into space. Could they go back into space? Did they have the resources? Everyone's sails were worn and frayed. They all had to be running low on raw matter stores, proteins, and minerals. And they had not done the stargazing that a planet-side cycle usually allowed them to sort out a new direction, a new destination. But they'd gathered air, and they had not shed this journey's wings yet, and they could not be here. The last thing was a definite truth based not on facts, but an absolute conviction. As her kin shifted and turned to start carrying themselves higher back the direction they had come, 
They knew they were leaving before they had truly arrived, and they all knew that it had to happen. Whatever the consequences might be, they would journey on. As the day gave way to the twilight of the planet's stratosphere that would then yield to the perpetual night of space, as the grip of this world began to loosen, Maxine knew they were right to go. As she saw the distance to the stars beyond this sun and this system, she also knew they were likely making the last journey any of them would ever see. Maxine's eyes opened. She was not in the same part of the cave she had been in before. There was still the steady and unwavering glow of the luminescent worms, but the crystal forest had now dwindled to a few straggling little shards. What dominated this part of the cave seemed to be great shelves of fungus and spongy outcroppings. Maxine saw all this with distant eyes. The space around her was a fact that she took in, but she was only partly here. Part of her was very, very far away. Mushrooms? She'd seen mushrooms, and though these were enormous and unlike anything she'd ever encountered in the hydroponic bay, she figured that was the nearest equivalent. Unimportant. She wondered about her flock. Did they make it to the next world? There was a sadness in knowing that she would never know, but there was a gratitude for all the worlds she had seen while she had been a member of that wandering family. She contained eons and light years. She was a living solar sail that traveled the stars. She was a member of a hive that had met a horrible fate in a vain attempt to serve the continuation of their kind. She was a 15-year-old girl from a planet she had only seen in pictures, and she was a living solar sail that traveled the stars. Mr. Humphreys sat across from her atop a big bulb of fungus, like the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland. Maxine had only seen the VR, but she heard the book was better. He watched her carefully, tentatively, but he said nothing. He just waited for her to respond. Finally, after staring at the far wall for a very long time, Maxine looked at the natty little badger and said, Show me more. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, 
Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.